0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk.
1: Awkward, depressing, disappointing. That's how I used to think about Valentine's Day growing up. As I've got older, I've become more cynical, exploitative, manipulative. Maybe I just didn't get enough Valentine's Day cards. But now as a Christian, a follower of Jesus and a lover of history, and by the way, every Christian should love history because ours is a faith that is built on history, not fantasy. I have come to know that Valentine's Day is actually meant to be about celebrating a different order of love. Not some kind of hallmark card, a heart-shaped balloon love, but a love that is about hearts that bleed, literally even, as if through a glass darkly, to mirror back, to reveal the greater love of God. Valentine's Day is a day to remember. Valentine of Rome, amongst other Christians, Valentine was killed for protecting and caring for persecuted Christians in 269 AD. In fact, he so loved his enemy even that he prayed for his jailer's daughter to be healed. This is the kind of love. This is the kind of love that reveals the otherworldly love of God. The love from above that every Christian freely receives in Jesus Christ. The great bloody love of the cross that Jesus God himself came and put our interests above his own to pay for sin's penalty and to defeat evil. And so in all our questions about relationships and singleness and friendships and marriage our answers should centre around this love. This holy, set-apart love should shape our lives and every relationship that we have. We recently sent out a survey to our whole church family, not just 1830s, because we know it's not just those it's not the 1830s that have questions about relationships, but to the whole church family inviting, what are your questions about relationships. We want to serve you and work alongside you, with you in this. And we had some great responses like, should marriage and celibacy be held in the same light? And what, what on earth is the process two people should walk together towards marriage? And by the end of the year, I really hope we'll have a podcast up and running answering those questions with the help of great people in our church family at Westminster Chapel, and wider from that from our commissioned family of churches as well. But for today, in the limited time that I have, I want to just give you some headline, big picture thinking about relationships. And I'm going to do that based on three amazing Bible characters, Paul, Rebecca and Boas. There'll be something here for everybody, whatever kind of relationship that you are in. These apply to married people. These principles apply to everybody that we're going to share and they will help you relate well to people who are in a different relationship to your own. First up is Paul. He teaches us today that singleness is not second best. Let's hear what he has to say from his first letter to the church in Corinth from the first century now.
2: Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all, whereas I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control... They should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the unmarried man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. And the interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things how to please her husband i say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint on, upon you but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the lord
1: singleness today is often wrongly viewed as a state of incompleteness if you're not married people can look down on you hey you can even look down on yourself perhaps concluding that you're just not good looking enough or that you have a character that's more prickly than a porcupine now sure there may need to be some things that are that are worked on we all we all have that of course and hearing a friend who you trust speak the truth in love to you about that and inviting that in that could be helpful but for me there of course were things to work on but there still are And there are even more that I am discovering and there always will be until Christ returns again. So it could actually also be equally possible, maybe probable, that God has a different plan for your life. That is very good. So Paul has... Three G's I want to work through now about singleness and marriage to help us to reorient our thinking about it. And the first of those is that singleness and marriage are both gifts. Verse 7 of chapter 7 says each has been given a gift of God. So FYI, God doesn't give bad gifts. He doesn't. He's not like your forgetful auntie who regifts you um, a present that you gave to her the previous Christmas. And that was something that you regifted to her in the first place that you didn't really like. God doesn't give bad gifts like that. He's the good, good father. His gifts are the best gifts in the world. And we've got to come with that mindset and say, what I'm unwrapping here, whatever gift he gives me for relationships, it's going to be good for me. He knows me and he knows what I need. But also all of God's gifts, these charisma gifts, this is what the word in the Greek means, they're always given to a person, not primarily for them, but for them to steward and hold for the blessing of others. Now, That's a really important point as we open up this whole subject together, that actually it's not about me, 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 this is what I need in my relationship. Actually, it's about whatever relationship status God deems best for us to have that we steward that and use that to be a blessing to others for his glory. Here's the second G, it's that singleness and marriage are both good. Paul speaks very highly of marriage. We see that in his letter that's called Ephesians. It reveals the mystery of God's love for his bride, the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, another of Paul's letters, he shows his thinking that marriage is intrinsically good because to forbid it is to teach the doctrine of demons. Here, Paul's saying that marriage is, is good because it's the right context for sexual passions to flow within, where there's true commitment and faithful love. That's why he's writing here but if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. It's quite likely he's not writing to all the unmarried people actually here, that verse 8, the unmarried and to the widows, could better be translated as to the widowers and to the widows, because he uses a masculine word for unmarried and the feminine word for, for widows. So it's possible we can't prove it, but he's writing to men who've lost their spouses, they've experienced sex but perhaps in grief induced sinning they are now going to visit prostitutes in this highly sexualized ancient city of Corinth they're visiting prostitutes now if it was the case that paul was saying that anybody with a sexual longing should marry then we'd all need to get married pretty much from 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 puberty at least i know i would have had to that can't be the context paul must be writing to those who have sexually strong passions And they are already sinning sexually. And I infer he's saying you need to repent and if possible, get married. Now, for some, this teaching on sex, which I don't have time to argue for or explain today, that makes them think that singleness is second best. That if you can't have sex, you don't get any intimacy. But they would be forgetting two things. The first is that Jesus had an incredible amount of intimacy with God and with other people and his life on earth, yet he had no sex. And then second, that you could have an incredible amount of sex, but have absolutely no intimacy. Now, there is something that is lost, but there's also actually something that may well be gained, as the brilliant Sam Albury puts it in this super book, Seven Myths About Singleness. It really is a must read for everyone, whatever your relationship status. As a single person, there is a depth of intimacy my married friends enjoy that I am not able to experience. To share pretty much all of life with one other person. But it is not as simple to say that I have less intimacy in my life as a result. Singleness gives me a capacity for a range of friendships I wouldn't be able to sustain if I was married. So while I might not know the unique depth of intimacy a married friend enjoys, there is a unique breadth of intimacy available to singles that married friends would not be able to experience. Singleness and marriage have their pros and cons. There are good things about being single, that you can travel more widely, you can spend more time away from home, that marriage really couldn't, probably shouldn't either. I often wonder about uh, John Wesley and William Carey, whether they should have been single rather than married because of the undue pressure and pain that their time away from home caused their spouses and their families usually you can be more flexible and you can change your plans a lot easier if you're single, if you're family you're married and you've got kids you can't just up and leave at any moment just getting out of the house is basically arctic expedition preparation meets cowboys rounding up cattle you've got to gather your kids you've got to find them you've got to get them toileted their shoes their coats on got to get snacks prepared for them all that sort of stuff nappies you've got to carry around and wet wipes and all that sort of stuff you've got to be prepared for in sum this is what sam albury says Singleness is not better than being married. Just as being married is not better than being single. God is so much smarter than we are. Someone like, say, Tim Keller would never have been so profoundly used by God were it not for his marriage to Kathy, who supports, sharpens and grounds him. Nor would someone like, say, John Stott have been so profoundly used by God were it not for his singleness, enabling him to give himself so deeply, to so many people, in so many places. The third G is singleness and marriage are both growers. They're grace growers. They both have their challenges that God uses, the ultimate stonemason, to better carve us and smooth us out and take away all those angular edges to make us better representatives of Jesus. Verse 32, Paul is saying, I want you to be free from anxieties, He wants you to be free from worrying about whether marriage and sex are sinful or less spiritual um, than singleness. And that's what was being argued back then by a pro-celibacy group. But what Paul is saying is he wants you to be mindful that there are concerns that those who are married will have that those who are single don't. And he's saying those concerns are amplified, intensified, verse 26, in times of present distress so persecution and famine. The African Bible commentary puts it brilliantly. As too many Africans know, from personal experience, family responsibilities weigh heavily in times of violence and persecution. Getting married, it's wonderfully joyful, but it doesn't make life easy. It makes things actually a little bit more complicated, there's a, a pressure point, attention as husband and wife now have got to learn how to live in pro- close proximity together well, even though things will really irritate them. He's left the toilet seat up again. Ah, <laughs> It's designed to grow patience and love for one another. Marriage is sanctifying, it teaches us to die to self, to remember that uh, God owns everything and to share everything we have with each other. You know, one of The first arguments that Holly and I had was in Ikea. It's rather public. And for some reason, I had got it into our head that um, the study that we were choosing furniture for, this spare room study, um, was gonna be my space. (laughs) My safe man space. It was mine. Holly could have the whole flat, but this was mine. Think Gollum and the Ring of Power. Needless to say, Holly didn't really like that. She felt like I was pushing herself out, not just the flat, but our life. We weren't doing it together. This was this wasn't right and unfair. And I, I eventually came round to her point of view, at least to some degree. And we agreed that she would have her side of the study and I would have mine. Now, some years later, it's so mixed up. We don't really know whose is who's and, and what's what. My point is, is that God uses marriage as husband and wife lovingly rub up against each other, they're shaped more into the image of Jesus. But that helpful tension can grow to become something far more difficult and painful. This happens to couples who enter into marriage, particularly without sufficient preparation for that and accountability and support of church leaders and their church family, and you can find yourself in a rather unhappy marriage. And being unhappy and married may well be far worse than being unhappy and being single. And if that's you, we understand. This has been a really difficult year, where marriages have been put under greater tension and pressure probably than ever before because of COVID-19, working at home, homeschooling, and so forth. So please... Don't suffer in silence. Please email today. Talk to me at westminsterchapel.org.uk. We'd love the opportunity to help to serve and be a blessing to you. Marriage can become even more sanctifying if and when kids show up on the scene. Now, they're wonderfully joyful, but those joys often take away from the me time that you would have had before. I have a vibration watch alarm so that I can get up early in the morning to spend time with God, at least that's the plan, uh, without waking anybody else up. And often at the moment, because of the season we're in, our youngest might have a nightmare. He'll come into our bed in the night and he'll kick us throughout the night. So I am dragging myself out of the bed, exhausted, through the flat, to the bathroom, sneaking over to try and not wake anybody else up. I even... Though I really need the toilet, I will, if I go to the toilet and need to flush the toilet, I might wake people up. So I've got to avoid doing that. So otherwise I'll cut short my time with God in the bathroom on the floor, sat there with the Bible on the toilet seat. That's 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 the reality at the moment. So I fantasize about what it might be like to be single again. To be able to get up in the morning and not worry about other people that you have to get ready to face the day. It's only me and there's no school to prepare these people for. they rush to the timetable to get out of the house. And I could put the kettle on and I could go to the toilet and flush it without worrying about making noise. I could have a pastry in the oven. I could look dreamily out of the window, leisurely sipping my tea and eating my pastry as I journal at my own pace and my own time reading God's word, having silence and solitude. If I try to do that at the moment, I will hear the words interrupting me within seconds. Daddy! <laughs> We're coming from somewhere in our flat typically in the morning. It kind of breaks the mood. Now I love being married and I love being a dad, but I think you get the point. Sometimes I wonder if too many singles spend too much of their time fantasizing about being married. And too many married spend too much of their time fantasising about being single. And what we really need to do is to seek the grace that is available in God for the gift that he's given us for now. Singleness is also sanctified. It also helps you to die to self. Think of this. of your closest friends gets married, and you feel like you've got to deal with being platonically dumped. Don't really have a conversation there; just sort of is assumed. And then henceforth, in this relationship with them, you're going to be the one who has to take the initiative. Uh, They're going to be busy with being married, and maybe kids are on the scene. They don't seem to have as much time for you as before, so you've got to you've got to make the initiative. And it just makes you feel like you're not wanted. Or it could be that you're coming home to an empty flat, empty empty house. There's no one waiting for you there to talk with and share about how your day has gone. It can make you feel unbelievably alone. But of course, you're not alone. You're really not alone. It's a moment of sanctification in those lonely moments. I remember The first time I actually met Sam Albury, and he came to preach at chapel, and we got a bit of time together. And I tell you, this man carried something I hadn't really seen for some time in a person. Something of just the sweetness of the presence of God. He clearly had an intimacy and a closeness that was so beautiful. I think of the disciples. Uh, Jesus' disciples, and they they saw that Jesus had this intimacy with the Father, a closeness and nearness that they really wanted to have. And that's why they went to him and said, teach us to pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. We want what you've got. That's how I thought about Sam. How had he developed such a sweetness of intimacy? Well, it came out of agonising moments of loneliness that enabled him to press into Jesus, to know him more. Marriage teaches us the shape of Christian love. Singleness shows the world its sufficiency. Jesus is enough. That there's more to life than marriage and sex. And actually it's pointing to the great future where there will only be one marriage between Jesus and the church, his bride. And that's the ultimate reality that's most important. Whether it's single, whether it's through marriage, you can know God better. And that's what matters. So the big question here, as I wrap this section up, is if you're wrestling through this about whether it's the gift of singleness or marriage for you, a better way to look at this is with which can I best serve the Lord? Right now, in my context, with with the gifts God's given me, with which can I best serve the Lord? We're going to transition now to look at some guidance on dating and relationships, some qualities to look for. But it's not just for those who are going through that stage of life, it's for all of us. These are qualities that we all need. And first up to teach us about this is the brilliant Rebecca. And she shows us that generous hospitality is what's hot. Let's listen to Genesis chapter 24.
0: Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan, of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell." but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahar. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for her camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels.
1: Four things. The first thing is look for a fellow believer. Verse 3, Genesis chapter 24 Abraham sends his servant to look for a wife for his son, not amongst the Canaanites, but amongst his own people. This isn't racism, this is beliefism. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 Be married only in the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 Do not be yoked to an unbeliever. Just imagine. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton being yoked together in marriage. Just think about it for a moment. Think about their political differences. And if you're in the cart that they're pulling, they've been yoked together, you're just not going to get anywhere. Their political differences, they're going to tear each other apart, be at war with each other, right? Well, if that's political opinions, up here is spiritual opinions, because they're more Ingrained in the DNA of who we are and who we become in Christ. Just think of one little practical area of how this might play out. A Christian married to a non-Christian and it's giving. The Christian wants to give and sow into the work of the church a proportion of the income that's coming into the, to the married couple. They want to be a part of the mission of God. They want to trust God with their finances and so on. But the, the non-Christian will be thinking, we worked hard for that money. It's ours to choose what we what we do with it, to spend it on, on ourselves for our own comforts and our own needs. Why would we give it to the church, this oppressive organisation that looks down on me in judgment as a sinner? All of that. Now, obviously, we, we don't think that, but a non-Christian could. And you can start to see that the tension just over one little area. Please don't marry somebody who's going to pull you away from Jesus. The second thing is pray really pray and ask god to show you the right person we see this verse 15 i love it the servants barely even finished speaking finished praying to god and there rebecca is prayer was key prayer was key for me i would not be married to my amazing wife holly without prayer i'm sure some of you are thinking well i'm praying already well, keep praying. Don't give up. Don't lose heart in prayer. Pray with faith. Maybe you need to reduce the goal down. Be more specific about how you pray and talk to some others about that, how you could do that. But just keep praying. The third thing is keep putting yourself in the right places. The servant comes to where the women would be. And Rebecca has made sure she's part of that group of of women. Ruth, as we'll see later, encouraged by Naomi and hate, listen to some wise mentors in your life, puts herself in the right place to catch the attention of Boaz. Hang out with your Christian friends and their friends. Keep coming regularly to church services, to church events. Yes, come primarily because you want to meet with God, but come aware, yeah, secondary, uh, Aim might be to meet someone else there. That's okay. Don't feel guilty about that. Take advantage of online apps and websites. Be wise about how you do that. Watch out for some of the same addictive kind of approaches to digital technology that are there for Facebook and Instagram and all that other stuff. And watch out for the ways that the world may kind of come in and shape some of these apps so that they, they perhaps prioritize image and appearance, what's on the outside more than what's on the inside. And you might be thinking as well on this point, I'm already doing all of that, Howard. I would encourage you, keep just keep going. Please don't withdraw and retreat. There's a good biblical principle here to put yourself in the right place. It might just be that that next meeting, that next opportunity is the one where you'll meet that someone. Point number four is look for the right signs. The servant was looking primarily about character. And so should you. Yes, it mentions that Rebecca, she's very physically attracted. There needs to be some spark that you fancy each other, but you will grow old. You will both get flabby, baggy and saggy. Character is what really matters. And here we see this beautiful character, generous hospitality. That is what's hot. So often, the world out there, it values things that it puts on glossy front covers and as a trophy to go after and get hold of, and God thinks very, very little of that. God doesn't care so much about the outward appearance. He looks to the heart, and so should you. Rebecca's generous hospitality, it's amazing. She inconveniences herself to serve. She's not asked to do this. She's just asked for a glass of water to give to the servant. She does that, but she goes way beyond that. She notices, she sees the greater need and she serves. This is a journey that had taken place of hundreds of miles. The servant, the camel, they would have been exhausted. Some commentators say, depending on the size of her jar, it would have taken 40 to 80 trips from the camels to the trough, something like two to four hours potentially of of, of work, of labour for her and to to a stranger. And she does it with grace. Verse 20 says that she she runs, she's enthusiastic, she's got such a heart to serve. This is what's really, really beautiful. I wonder, is that what you value? Do you value generous hospitality in the way that you should? And is this what you are like? The final section is about Boaz. Generous responsibility is actually rather raunchy. Let's hear from Ruth chapter two.
3: Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the land of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest.
4: Then Boaz said to Ruth, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her.
1: Boaz is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 2 as a worthy man. In the King James Version, its translation, it says that he's a mighty man of wealth. But it's not Boaz's money that's attractive. It's the way he uses his wealth to serve others that's so appealing. We see him, Boaz, not as a mean landowner like others were, trying to keep all the profits for themselves, maximising everything that they could keep. No, he doesn't harvest everything. He leaves space as he's required to, responsibly, in obedience to the law, for the poor to glean, so that they would have enough. And when he encounters Ruth, he seeks to protect her without controlling her. He encourages her, stay, come and glean amongst my my fields, and he makes sure the young men, they, they, they won't trouble her, he notices her. There's a spark of attraction there, without doubt, but it is her character that is predominant in the account. From verse 11 onwards to 12 and then into chapter 10, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 3, it's the good deeds that have become famous already in Bethlehem. This is where it's taking place. Of this Moabitess, this woman Ruth, how she was a widow herself, yet she's Put the interest of Naomi, this older widow, her, her mother-in-law, above her own interest to come to a foreign land and to care and look after her. Wow, he sees something of her beautiful character, and, and that's what that's what that's what attracts him to her. He doesn't dismiss her because she's not Jewish. No. What matters is that she's a believer. It's put so beautifully in in verse twelve that she had come to find refuge under Yahweh's wings. He likes the fact that she looks to his character, not to his age. She's maybe too old for me. No, no, it's it's, it's the his character that's appealing. And so he gives himself to her responsibly, progressively, more and more, little by little. First, verse nine, it's just it's just water that he's offering. And as their commitment for each other grows, as she commits to him and he commits to her, he ultimately gives himself to her in marriage. He takes responsibility. He's generous with his responsibility as a kinsman, redeemer, and with integrity, he redeems her. Is that what you're valuing? And is that what you're like? It's hard not to see a picture of Jesus, that his greater extra mile service to us on the cross, feeding us and providing us with the spiritual water of life that we so desperately need again and again and again until every dry and parched part of our souls is restored. Or in the redeeming love of Boaz, this eternal ministry that now is ours through the cross of his redemption. We get provision and protection restored by a greater love that we find a sense of value and purpose and meaning and safety and protection in. As all the resources and all the wealth of heaven are given for our spiritual blessing. Wow. Wow. We're back again to where we began, the holy love of God. And as we rest in this love, we get to be generous. We become more generous with our hospitality, with our responsibility as we become more like God. This is the love that means that you can be single and this love is enough for your singleness. This is the love that makes sense of how two sinful people can come together in holy matrimony. And it is this holy love that is the answer to all of our questions about relationships. They're all solved as we seek to grasp more the height and the depth, the width and the breadth of God's love. And to know and to, to, to really intimately know this love that surpasses knowledge. Bless you. Lord God, I thank you so much for all the people watching this message. Will I pray, fill us again with the experience of your holy love, the way you serve us with unbelievable hospitality of the cross, sacrificing yourself to welcome us into the family of the Godhead. To be your children, God, I thank you that your love is greater than the redemptive love of Boaz, that we can be redeemed and restored and all that is broken and crushed and damaged and deformed by sin can be made and set right. All of the brokenness of lost loved ones and of being widowed by this world, Lord, can be made right as your love overwhelms and overcomes. Lord, and I pray, God, give wisdom, strength, hope and encouragement for every single person out there who's satisfied and feels called into the gift of singleness may your love be more and more and more enough for them may they reveal the sufficiency of your love to the world for those who are exploring whether they have the gift of marriage be with them as they go about that help them to be patient help them to pray help them to trust help them to put themselves rightly with the right motivation in the in in the right places lord god be with them in that bring them that right person bring people together may there be wonderful marriages but may you Protect people from bad relationships as well. God, people's hearts, I pray. Lord, and strengthen marriages. Strengthen marriages, I pray, in this challenging season. Help the love that you have for each of us to strengthen the love that husbands and wives can have for each other. They, they would better reveal this mystery of your love for your bride, the church. God, help us to have wonderful relationships at Westminster Chapel infused with your holy love. In your name I pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel.